If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, welcome to this month's BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm the magazine's editor, Dave Musgrove. Coming up in this issue... Visitors can walk between the cases and get a sense of what it's like to be on the end of a bayonet. That's me taking a tour around the brand new Culloden Battlefield Visitor Centre. It's very likely that the painting, the original, was painted in Edward's reign. Where it is, is still a mystery. That was popular historical writer Alison Weir, who will be telling us how she found an unknown portrait of the teenage Queen Elizabeth I. I think the two men were more like twins than members of different political species. And finally, that was Professor Robert Service, who has taken our time machine back to 1924 this month to investigate the leadership battle between Trotsky and Stalin in the Soviet Union. OK, before we get cracking, let me tell you that we have a great competition on our website this month just for podcast listeners. Go to www.bbchistorymagazine.com and click on the podcast competition box and you'll see that we're asking you one question that you'll only know the answer to if you'd listened to this podcast. Give us the right answer and you'll be entered into a draw to win a complete set of the CD audiobook version of Simon Sharma's monumental three-part history of Britain, which is read by Timothy West. So, listen to this short clip of Sharma in action, and you'll have the answer to the question. It's Timothy West telling us about Queen Victoria's visit to the 1851 Great Exhibition. Somewhere beyond the 24-tonne lump of coal, the 80-blade sportsman's knife, the mechanical oyster opener billed as the ostracide, beyond the gutter-percher company's steamship furniture convertible into a buoyant life raft in cases of mishap, beyond the tea party of stuffed stoats, were the glass beehives, designed by John Milton, inventor of London. The little queen, in her pink watered silk gown and tiara, stopped in front of the exhibit and peered in at the teeming occupants. What struck her most 
was their virtuous indifference to public inspection. There was honey to be made, and they got on with making it. Her Majesty and Prince Albert frequently bestowed their notice on the wonderful operations of the gifted little insects, whose undeviating attention to their own concerns, in the midst of all the various distractions of sound and sight that surrounded them, afforded an admirable lesson. It was a lesson that did not need labouring. There would be times when Victoria would feel the indecency of visibility. Ten years on, robbed of the long protecting shadow of her husband, she would pull the curtains, douse the gaslight, bury herself in blackness. But not on this sparkling May Day, 1851. The greatest day in our history, the most beautiful and imposing, she wrote to her uncle, King Leopold of the Belgians. On this day, inside the Crystal Palace, Victoria was perfectly content to be Queen of the Humming Hive. She could return the stairs of 30,000 season ticket holders and feel nothing but a welling of sacred exhilaration. The CD version of Simon Sharma's History of Britain is published by BBC Audiobooks. Now, while you're on the competition page, if you're listening in the UK, perhaps you'd like to sign up to our new weekly email alert service to keep you posted on the history programmes that you won't want to miss on TV and radio in the week ahead. It's completely free and will land in your inbox on Friday afternoon to give you our pick of the best upcoming history to watch and listen to. Just click on the sign-up button on that competition page to do that. Right, let's have a round-up of this month's history news from the magazine's section editor, Rob Attar. Rob, what's been in the news over the last few weeks? I think we've got a Scottish story to start off with. Well, we do. First of all, Kelvin Grove Art Gallery and Museum was Scotland's most popular visitor attraction last year, and that's according to Visit Scotland. The Glasgow Museum reopened about two years ago after a multi-million pound refurbishment, and they had about two and a quarter million people came through their doors over the 12-month period. OK, why are we sending A-level students to Japan? Well, it's a good question. It's part of the Their Past, Your Future programme, which is done in association with the Imperial War Museum, and a group of pupils from Boswell School in Essex have won a national competition to go over to Japan to find out about how the Second World War was viewed from a Japanese perspective. So they'll be looking at the nuclear bombs, but also not just nuclear bombs, trying to get a more in-depth perspective on the war. Okay, and is something stirring in the archives of black history? Yes, it soon will be. The Black Cultural Archives, which is a major resource for black and African history they haven't yet really got a permanent home and it looks like they're going to get one they've just had a £4 million grant from the Heritage Lottery Fund to give them a building in South London where they'll be able to keep their holdings and that should be a good resource for students of black and African history Thanks Rob Now let me take you to the Scottish Highlands to get a taste of the new visitor centre at the battlefield of Culloden Clodden, just outside Inverness, is the site of the notorious Battle of 1746 when the Duke of Cumberland's government forces defeated the Jacobite army led by Bonnie Prince Charlie. Commonly seen as a vicious battle between England and Scotland, the reality is rather more complex. So here I am on the 16th of April in the brand new Culloden Visitor Centre. I'm here with three experts, so I'll ask them to introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Katrina Thompson and I'm Head of Collections, Archives and Libraries for the National Trust of Scotland. Hi, I'm Bob Wisnam-Savage, Curator of European Edge Weapons at the Royal Armouries, Leeds. Hi, I'm Caroline Tempest. I'm the Senior Interpretive Planner for the National Trust for Scotland. 
Now, I'm here because the centre has recently been opened. So can someone give me a little bit of history about the new centre? When was it opened and what was here before? We had a centre on the site here at Culloden that really couldn't cope with the significant visitor numbers that we get here every year, upwards of a quarter of a million. And also through new archaeological research, it was discovered that the old centre was actually built on top of the government lines, which obviously we needed to remove it from the government lines and build it away from the battle site itself. So we've been planning this new building for the last 10 years. We completed it in late 2007 and the official opening is today. Yeah. And it looks amazing. It's a fantastic building. We're going to have a look around the exhibition now. But are we actually on top of the battlefield here? Where are we in terms of where the battles actually fought? The centre is built just behind the left wing of the government lines and what this means is that the actual battlefield centre itself is very much part of the landscape itself and part of the battlefield. In fact, one goes through the centre and comes out where those government lines would be. You'll come out hopefully totally knowledgeable about what happened on this field all those years ago in 1746, and you're primed up, and there you are. You're on the battlefield. Okay, let's come on in then. Uh, the, the first object that visitors see as they walk into the new centre are the great pipes of Balcher. And these pipes, the bagpipes, were chosen because immediately they start to break down barriers and people's perceptions of what Culloden is all about. Pipes are thought to have been played by a government piper and not a Jacobite piper. And that leads on to the next thing, which is one of the first panels we get here is uh, a, a definition of what a Jacobite is, because that's surely one of the big problems with understanding this battlefield is, is people don't really know who the two sides were. We have this traditional idea of England versus Scots, but that's not correct, is it? No, it isn't correct at all. Scots fought on both sides and English did as well and a regiment, the Manchester Regiment was formed, a Jacobite Regiment was formed on the march down into England by Charlie and it is this common, it's almost, people just accept it as the truth. You get adverts in, in the newspaper sort of, it's like, you know, England versus Scotland, the last match as though it's just that simple, that black and white and it isn't, it's, it's, it's very, very grey. Mm. Is there an easy definition of what a Jacobite is or was? A Jacobite is basically somebody who was for the, the restitution of the, the House of Stuart to the, the British throne, not necessarily the Scottish throne, mm-hmm. uh, which is the other sort of perhaps red herring, is that um, it was just sort of a, a matter of Scottish independence. Yeah. When Bonnie Prince Charlie made his declarations, if you like, it was for the, thro- the, three, the, the throne of the three kingdoms. Yeah. And in fact, when he said bye-bye to Flora MacDonald, it wasn't I'll see you in Edinburgh, it was I'll see you at the court of St James in London. Sure. Which shows where he wanted to be. <laughs> and the opposition, do we call them the Hanoverians or the government forces? What, what's, what's the preferred terminology? We call them, in the exhibition throughout, they're called the government forces and felt that was an easier term for, for visitors to understand who perhaps don't know very much about the period and about the Jacobite uprising. Yeah. Now, we've come to our first map, our first sort of interactive map area here. Obviously, it's quite important to, to understand this battle, to understand what was going on beforehand. So you've made an effort to tell the story, the wider story, rather than just the battle itself. That's right. Uh, It's really important to understand exactly what happened when Prince Charles Edward Stuart landed in Scotland and and follow the story of his march south and as he gained support uh, and moved down into England. 
And so there's a couple of these, what we call campaign tables, which show an aerial view of the British Isles, and projected onto that is an animated sequence of Charles arriving and his progression south, and you're able to interact with this through pressing different buttons and finding out who was where when. It shows where Cumberland is, and it shows where... Prince Charles Edward Stuart is, and also where their supporting troops and navy are as well. So, and people do spend a lot of time just playing with this and understanding uh, how events panned out. Yeah. Okay. As it is an extremely contentious story in terms of Anglo-Scottish relations, how do you get that balance between being pro-Scottish or pro-English? Well, I think it was critical for the National Trust for Scotland to have an independent voice and to tell the facts as we knew them to be. And, and to do that, we did, uh, from the outset, appoint this external academic advisory body who uh, vetted all the content within the exhibition. And it was critical for us to have an academic rigour behind it and, and hear uh, all the different arguments and ultimately end up with a, an objective exhibition that uh, really has had a lot of academic stimulus and uh, debate behind it. The exhibition does include the latest research and the latest theories, so the latest archaeological evidence is here and is presented. So it's, it's smack up to date. We tried very, very hard to balance the number of objects in the exhibition between the Jacobite side and the government side. You will find as you go around the exhibition that there are many more Jacobite objects here, but that's largely because history dictated that more Jacobite objects were kept because of the romanticising of the tale afterwards and the fact that it became a lost cause. So there's an awful lot of exhibits in the exhibition that were kept as mementos and cherished by families who supported the Jacobite cause. So the fact that there are fewer government objects does not mean to say that there is any bias, it's just they're an awful lot harder to find. Sure. Okay, let's move on. Where have we got to now at the end of this first gallery section? We're actually in the exhibition standing just before the installation which interprets uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie's critical council at Derby. And the exhibition itself works with the architecture of the building. As we've walked down the story of the 45 to this point in time, we're actually physically walking south. Then we step into an audio installation with the debate at Derby before the visitors turn physically north back to Scotland, if you like. Therefore, they're physically following the story uh, just as the Jacobites marched south and then turned round and and marched north. Hmm. I suppose we ought to have a quick update on where we are historically, actually. So, Bonnie Prince Charlie had landed in Scotland, he'd got his, his forces together, he'd made his way down to Derby where there was the thought that he may threaten London, but he turned around for for reasons which are much disputed, and and then this was the turning point back up to Scotland, and then that led eventually to Claude. Is that right, Bob? Yes. If we go to Derby, or go through Derby, and look, once you turn around and head north again, you're looking north, and you actually, there's a window looking out onto Culloden's. For those who know the story, it's there, that the outcome is there. Let's go north then. Right, now we've come to another artefact display panel, and this is a warlike one with some of these famous basket-hilted broadswords, I see. This is the first sign of some real military activity. A lot of these are weapons traditionally associated with the Jacobite army include the targe, which was a type of round shield, which was held in the left hand, 
and then the basket-hilted broadsword held in the right hand. These were used along with guns. The Jacobite army just wasn't armed with, with shield and sword. They, they were armed with, with firearms. But they have become sort of iconic symbols of the, inverted commas, Highland warrior and the Jacobite cause. This is the window that Bob referred to earlier, the first view onto the battlefield itself. And significantly, it comes just at the point in time where interpretively we're talking about the night before battle and the ill-fated night march that the Jacobites undertook. So really, again, the architecture working with the interpretation to, to heighten the emotions and the sense of storytelling. Let's press on. Forward march, as the Forward march, says. as we walk through the night march itself, which offers us the opportunity to, to walk with the Jacobites on their march, but also hear a little of the government celebrations for Cumberland's birthday. We're trying to bring out here the difference between the armies at this point in time, the well-rested, well-fed government army, the exhausted, hungry, tired Jacobite army as they faced each other on the field of battle. And then we're moving on to... An exciting artefact, which, which I think has got a very interesting story to it. So who'd like to tell me a little bit about what I'm looking at here? What you're looking at here is an embroidery panel that came to our notice very late on in the project uh, in August of last year. It came up at a sale room in Edinburgh and we were delighted to be able to purchase it. It's currently about a metre in length, but we think it was probably at least twice that size. The left-hand side of the panel has been largely lost and what we're left with is the right-hand side which shows a scene of the government troops at a fairly important point in the battle and I think Bob could probably tell you a little bit more about that. A big feature of this panel is the government cavalry and uh, they're obviously shown probably the the importance of the cavalry is stressed and, and they did actually break through some enclosure walls to come around the rear of the Jacobite lines and engaged in the pursuit and harrying of of the Jacobites. But the detail is incredible. You have the artillerymen. Whoever did this, although it looks comparatively primitive and the the, the soldiers look like people from Ken Dodd's Diddyman sort of thing, it's actually that the artillerymen there are shown in their blue coats and we know the artillerymen wore blue coats. So somebody knew exactly what they were doing when they did this. So it's a very impressive surviving piece. We think it was probably worked by women in the household of Charles Edmund Hay, who was the third Laird of Hopes and a distant relative of the Secretary of State for Scotland at the time. So very likely a government supporter, although we can't say that for absolutely sure. It's full of fascinating detail, probably taken from prints or other sources, but there's a high probability that whoever stitched this knew someone or people involved in the battle itself. And what we have on the far left-hand side are figures in Harlequin outfits, which possibly including Bonnie Prince Charlie, We have a figure on horseback waving a tricorn hat, which could be Cumberland himself. Two figures to the right with the letters W and M above them, which has been suggested could represent Wolfe and Munro. And right over to the very far right, a very mysterious figure, a black figure on horseback, who we have not been able to identify at all. But if anybody knows who this black figure is, we would love to hear from We've got some possibly fairly unpleasant things to look at over here, haven't we? So let's go and see what we've got here. Musket balls. 
What's fascinating about this display is that all these pieces have been found on the battlefield. And a lot of them, there, there's this immediacy, which a lot of pieces from other places, they may have associations with the 45, they, but there is a directness here. When one looks through these, one realises on that day, the 16th of April, 1746, these were whizzing through the air. Mm. And not only probably hitting things and people, we know they were hitting things and people. For some examples, as you can see, they've actually hit and sort of splattered. How, how can we tell whether they've been fired or not? Well, some have got uh, striations on them, but more importantly, one can see these ones in this, in the far right case, for instance. Ah, when they've they impacted. Yeah. yeah. Now, these could have hit bone, they could have hit woods, they have been fired and have hit. There's also grape shot, which was fired at close range, so there's evidence of the actual real horrific nature of 18th century warfare in the so-called age of reason. And we've talked about the immediacy of what we're looking at here. In terms of actual immediacy, I presume if I were to walk out that door there, I'd be onto the battlefield and be able to be having a look around. You would indeed. That's exactly right. The interpretation was planned so that you could leave the building at this point and experience the battlefield for yourself at the most appropriate point in the story. And as visitors leave their hand in the battlefield guide, which is GPS-triggered audio and visual device which orientates people around the battlefield with minimal intrusion on the landscape itself once people have been around the field they come back in through the same door and then continue the story and learn about the aftermath so right in the center of the battle zone we have two enormous glass cases that visitors can walk right around both facing each other in one case it's filled with jacobite weaponry and the other is government weaponry all of these objects if not carried on the field of battle itself are absolutely authentic to the period and we went to a great deal of trouble to make sure that we chose absolutely the right pieces. What we wanted to do was to try and create a dynamic opposition between the two groups of uh, weaponry and visitors can walk between the cases and get a sense of what it's like to be on the end of a bayonet. The weapons are facing each other as if, almost as if they're in conflict themselves. They're two different armies and it is quite something to walk through as we are now between if you look one way, you've got the opposing Jacobite army with targe yeah. and sword and gun, and you turn around and you face this sharp forest of, yeah, of bayonets. Very much staring down the barrel of the, of the government guns here, aren't yeah. Now, before we leave, there's a brief corridor on the aftermath, and one of the things which is interesting me in terms of reputations is the reputation of, of the victor of Gladden, Cumberland. I don't think you call him a butcher at any point in this exhibition. Is, is that correct, or have I missed it? The narrative voice doesn't call him Butcher, although we allude to the fact that history has given him this title. Again, you know, we don't want to tell people what to think about this event. People are left to come up with their own judgments, and we give them the facts to do that. It's a very nice section on the two princes and what happened to them, and you do find out what happened afterwards. Um, for both of them, it was pretty bad. It, Bad ending. They didn't have happy endings either way. <laughs> but, but of course, it wasn't just the two protagonists. You know, the, the impact on Scotland, as everyone knows, was enormous. And we do try and get over some of that as we walk down this aftermath corridor. One of the big suggestions has always been that following Culloden, and, and this is the reason why Cumberland has the gruesome reputation, is that it's been said that it led directly to the Highland clearances. You don't 
follow that line here in the exhibition, do you? No, it was one of the most interesting workshops with the academic advisory panel where we, we talked about the aftermath. And the consensus was that, no, Culloden did not cause the clearances, but it did accelerate those events. So we do try and get that across. The most poignant image is one of the final images of Charles in his later life. Where sometimes people talk about this portrait and talk this, they see about a, a, a rattled alcoholic. But to me, I think it's a very fine portrait. But I think what you see there is, is a man. It's a sad portrait of a sad man who, many years previously, realised once the forty-five had stopped, really, that was it. There was never really going to be another chance. He did come back and start visited Britain again in seventeen early seventeen fifties, but. It never really was going to happen again, and this is his star shone early and he, look, he looks brightly. far from Bonnie. In that yeah, he's far from Bonnie. Described here as being of melancholy, mortified appearance by a contemporary. Is that his death mask there as well that we've got? It is. It's a cast from the original mm. wax mask. Okay, so a fairly sombre note to end on, but then fairly sombre episode in history. Yes. So, that's what's new at Culloden. Now let me ask BBC History Magazine Deputy Editor Sue Wingrove what's new in the world of history books. Hello, I'm going to be talking about three of the 13 books that we've reviewed in this June issue. Okay, and the first one that you've chosen is a book about the dissolution. That's right, it's by Geoffrey Morehouse and it's called The Last Office... 1539 and the dissolution of a monastery. Our reviewer Jonathan Wright enjoyed this account of the daily life of a Durham priory on the eve of Henry VIII's cataclysm. This book looks at the dissolution of the monasteries through the trials of one priory. For 450 years the Benedictine priory in Durham played a vital role in the spiritual, cultural and economic life of the North East. This book is good because Geoffrey Morehouse paints a compelling and atmospheric portrait of medieval monastic living. The Priory's life all came crashing down in the winter of 1539 when the last prior, Hugh Whitehead, had to surrender to the monastery to the offices of Henry VIII. Morehouse reminds us just how shocking the events of 1539 must have been, not least the desecration of St Cuthbert's tomb, which was smashed open by a sledgehammer. OK, sounds fascinating. Your second choice, I think, is a biography of one of our most famous archaeologists. That's right, right up to the 20th century now, and a book called Bloody Old Britain, OGS Crawford and the Archaeology of Modern Life by Kitty Hauser. This was reviewed by Nick Renison. This is the story of OGS Crawford, an ex-Flying Corps observer and a pioneer in the art of aerial photography in the early 20th century. Um, he mapped the contours of ancient sites from the new vantage point offered by early aeroplanes. And why is this book good? Well, it's good because it's entertaining, it's colourful and it's a well-written story of an eccentric, demanding and bad-tempered character who was nonetheless known affectionately to colleagues as Uncle Oggs. He professed to hate what he called bloody old Britain, and he saw the future as belonging to the supposedly scientific and rational society being created in the Soviet Union, which he had visited. With his uh, flying goggles and his tweed trousers tucked into his socks, he toured Britain on a specially adapted bicycle, photographing ordinary scenes of the 20s and 30s, with the aim of building up an archive of the bad old world that the socialist revolution would soon destroy. Okay, so OGS Crawford was quite a character and your last choice of book is uh, about an architectural character. Yes, we're going back in time now to the 18th century to London in the aftermath of the Great Fire. This book is called Building St Paul's and it's by James W.B. Campbell and it was reviewed by Anthony Garachty. 
Now, the book's published because it's the tercentenary of the last stone of the lantern of St Paul's being fixed into place in 1708. The architect, Christopher Wren, was by then 76 years old and he was too frail to attend, but he lived to see the cathedral completed. James Campbell's study explores the practicalities of building. In a series of short, engaging chapters, he traces the construction of the cathedral from the aftermath of the Great Fire to the early years of the 18th century. And why would I want to read this? Well, it's good because it's concise, it's elegant and it's beautifully illustrated. Plus, Campbell introduces the many types of ordinary people, the artisans, who were employed on its erection. These include masons, bricklayers, glaziers, plumbers, and he charts their progress through crisis, war and recession as the cathedral rose. Based on extensive original research, Campbell's book reminds us that St Paul's was the creation of many thousands of men and, perhaps surprisingly, a few women too. Thanks, Sue, and you can read the full reviews of those books in this month's issue of the magazine. Next, let's move on to hear how Alison Weir and Tracy Borman managed to uncover a previously unknown portrait of the teenage Queen Elizabeth. In this month's issue of BBC History magazine, we've got a feature from you and your co-author Tracy Borman about the fact that you've come across a previously unseen portrait of Queen Elizabeth. Yes, Dave, that was, it was very exciting, and it happened by accident, actually, because uh, the curator of Bowden House, the Duke of the Clues stately home in Northamptonshire, is a friend of Tracy, she was researching Elizabeth I, and he sent her a scan of this painting of Henry VIII and his children that's in the Duke's private collection and not on public display, and never has been. And Tracy knew I was interested in Tudor portraits, I've been studying them for 40 years, so she sent me the scan. And I took one look at it and connected it with a painting in the National Portrait Gallery that was previously called Lady Jane Grey and is now called Portrait of a Woman. And she's a dead ringer. And I thought, my goodness, you know, this is an early portrait type of Elizabeth I that's not been identified. And it's quite a find because there are only two known portrait types of Elizabeth as princess. This is a teenage Elizabeth, isn't it? That's the key thing yes, here. it is. So how rare is this to see a picture of Elizabeth at such an early age? It's incredibly rare. There's a painting of her at the age of about 10 or 11 in the Henry VIII family group at Hampton Court. And then there's one of her around the age of about 13, and that was done around 1546 to 7. It's listed in Henry VIII's inventory, and it's now at Windsor. There are several portraits that conform to the type of the Balton portrait scattered around the country. There's one at Stein House, one at Audley End. There's one in New York. There are several other versions. A lot of them are called Lady Jane Grey, but it's as long ago as 1969, Sir Roy Strong identified one as, as Elizabeth, and it's very likely that they aren't, we can now say they're all Elizabeth. Now, the problem with the picture that we've got at Borton House mm. is it's not a terribly good copy, is it? It's a no, copy it's of an not. original. It's not very well executed. We've been trying desperately to trace the original. That The portrait we have probably dates from 1650 to 1680. But the Tudor original must date, I feel, and, and Tracy feels too, from the middle to late years of Edward's reign, circa 1551 to 3. Why we think that is because... The figure of Edward is central. He is larger than his two sisters, and neither of them, both of the sisters' images are based on portraits we don't know. The pictures of Henry VIII to the left and Edward are based on state portraits, Henry by Holbein and Edward by William Scrott, the, the set portrait type of the king that was painted around this time. Had this painting been done later, had it been like a 17th century version, Elizabeth is likely to have figured as the central figure because she was the most important and the most vivid Tudor monarch in people's memory at that time. 
So it's very likely that the painting, the original, was painted in Edward's reign. Where it is, is still a mystery. It certainly was in the Buccleuch family, but it's not a palace house at Bewley, which is one place. We're still trying to investigate Ditton Park, because that's where it was said to have been in 1964. So what do you think? How likely are we to be able to track down that original at any point? Inquiries at Ditton Park have proved fruitless, but in the 1990s it was taken over by a computer company. And the, the trail has gone cold. What does this portrait of the young Elizabeth tell you about Elizabeth that you didn't know before? We don't have anything, any sort of certain portrait of her at this time. And it's also painted in the period that this is after the scandal of her, of her relationship with Admiral Thomas Seymour, when he was sent to the block in 1549. He'd schemed to marry her, and uh, there was rather a scandal when she was in, living in Catherine Parr's household, the household of stepmother Catherine Parr after Henry VIII's death. And there was a, some, something going on between between her and Seymour. Catherine caught them together and Elizabeth was banished from the household. There were even rumours that she was probably unfounded, I would say, as a historian. But after that, Elizabeth had to retrieve her reputation and she took to affecting the garb of a virtuous Protestant maiden wearing simple black and white clothing. This portrait shows her in that clothing. And so it's putting into vision the, the image that we, we have in our minds of Elizabeth. We research her at this time, later in Edward's reign. And the picture is part of a bigger tradition of Tudor portrait yes. painting that's got a kind of a political edge to it, isn't it? All Tudor royal family portrait groups were painted for propaganda purposes. Either they were commissioned by the royal family themselves or they were commissioned by ambitious courtiers. This one is probably commissioned by a courtier. It could have been Lord Montague, who, who was actually instrumental in framing Henry VIII's will and Edward VI's device for the succession. So he would be anxious to show Edward's succession. And also, the other candidate is Will Summers, the King's Jester, who appears in this portrait. He does, looking slightly shifty in the background, isn't he? He does, rather. Yes, that's true. And there's another version of this portrait that used to be at Althorpe, not only five miles away from Bowton, and it's now in America. And it's got a rather different composition. It's got Henry VIII to the left, and in the middle we've got Summers, and then we've got Mary I on the right, based on the state portrait. But it's definitely, definitely the same figure of Summers. The composition derives from the Bowton picture. The Bowton picture is earlier. That the, the, the Althorpe picture is probably painted in Mary's reign because Edward, the Protestant Edward, is edited out, and Summers looks about ten years older, or a few years older. So, as you say, he looks rather shifty in the background. <laughs> And it's it's unusual one would think to find a jester in royal portraits, but actually Summers appears in the authenticated Henry VIII family group at Hampton Court. There is a precedent. And, and jesters sometimes had slightly more political importance than we might imagine, they don't did. we? They, they, they weren't just they figures did. of fun. No, that's right. And at the end of Henry's life, Henry becomes very megalomaniac, and Summers was one of his closest confidants. Uh, being he wasn't just a jester; he was a man who shared Henry's very private hours. And Henry became increasingly bent on privacy towards the end of his reign, and he was ailing and ill. And Summers controlled access to him. It's possible that Summers was the one who facilitated Lord Montague's access to Henry at this time, especially at the time the King's will was devised. And it, it may well be that he's included as a, in gratitude. We also have to remember that Summers also had links with the Firmer family, who were Eastern Neston in Northamptonshire, 10 miles south of Althorpe. We keep coming back to the Northamptonshire link. What's the future for the Bowton House portrait? I mean, obviously, um, readers of BBC History magazine can see it reproduced in the magazine, but is it going to be put on display anywhere? 
Oh, I'm pretty sure it will be. They're very excited about it. The Dukes are to be kept informed. And Gareth Fitzpatrick, who is the house manager, who very kindly invited Tracy and myself up there, we went up there to see the portrait. I think, and when the house opens, and it opens in the month of August, I think that portrait will be very firmly on display. Alison, thank you very much. Thank you, Dave. Alison Weir's latest historical novel, The Lady Elizabeth, has just been published by Hutchinson, and you can read more about that story in the June issue of the magazine, which goes on sale in all good news agents in the UK on Tuesday the 27th of May. If you'd prefer to subscribe, we've got a special offer for UK podcast listeners this month, where you can save 25% on the cover price and pay just £16.20 for every six issues. Call our hotline on 0844-844-0250 to take advantage of that. Now finally, every month we invite an eminent historian into our time machine to find out which year they would most like to go back to and why. Rob Attar posed that very question to the renowned historian of Russia, Robert Service. When would you like to go back to in our time machine? Well, I'd like to go back to January 1924 when Lenin died. And I'd like to interview Leon Trotsky, who was thought at the time by most people in Russia and abroad as the likeliest successor to Lenin, who, after all, was the joint leader of the October Revolution of 1917. And what would you like to ask Trotsky? Well, I'd like like to ask him what he was thinking about and what he was planning at the time, because he, many years afterwards, said that he regretted not going back to Moscow for Lenin's funeral. Now, it was at this funeral, which was organised by Joseph Stalin, Trotsky's big rival, that Stalin became very prominent for the first time. And Trotsky always thought that possibly Stalin had tricked him about the date of the funeral, which meant that since Trotsky was in the south of the country at the time, uh, he wouldn't be able to get back in time for it. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And so missing this funeral, did that have a really bad effect on his chances of becoming leader? Well, Trotsky said so. Uh, Trotsky certainly let other people believe that. And that's what I'd like to ask him about, because I can't really see it's true. So what do you think was the real reason that Trotsky didn't become the leader? I think that he was a pretty lousy politician. He offended people quite unnecessarily, and he was also not what you might call a complete politician, even when he was 
being lousy at being a politician. So he didn't have the concentrated focus on being a politician that the others had. So he didn't just miss the funeral, he missed the next couple of months of politics after Lenin's death. He stayed down on the Black Sea coast recuperating from an illness. So he has a lot to answer for in the interview we're going to put to him. He was very effective, wasn't he, in, during the actual revolution and the civil war. So what do you think changed from then until Lenin's death? Well, again, if we had him across the table in an interview, I think we would put this to him. Why was it that you could recover from all your illnesses when the civil war was going on, and yet you didn't drag yourself off your sofa after the civil war? I think a lot of it had to do with the role of the revolutionary in Trotsky's eyes. He didn't really want to be sitting in meetings every day. He loved writing. It was one of the criticisms that I've come across since conducting the research made of Trotsky that he he was too much of a Renaissance man. He was too much interested in, in writing about literature, in writing about questions of everyday life, than he was about sorting out the problems of the Russian Revolution. He was a much more interesting figure as a result. Obviously he was. He was the one communist leader who could talk to people in the arts, could talk to philosophers, could talk to poets, could talk to novelists. And of course, he was an absolutely magical writer himself. He had a real elegance about his style of composition that made him so influential even when he wasn't in power, and which means that a lot of our interpretation of the Russian Revolution flows from his writings. Um, what do you think it was that Stalin had that Trotsky didn't have? Stalin had focus. Stalin concentrated his energies on getting power, but also on wielding it, on exercising it. What is very clear from the, the minutes and the transcripts of the Politburo meetings, which we now have access to, is that Stalin had the same sort of confidence as Trotsky to issue decrees on politics, on economics, on society, on culture, on international relations. And he didn't take himself off for these long periods away from the seat of power. He, he was a much underestimated politician, I think. After this crucial few months when Trotsky was absent and missed the funeral, after that point, was Trotsky no longer in the front-runner position to succeed? Trotsky did have a go at the succession. He did have a go at trying to succeed Lenin in the months before Lenin died. And he was severely reprimanded for his activities at the party conference, which was happening as he was traveling south in that fateful January of 1924. But there's a lot to ask Trotsky about, if we bring him back from the grave, about his feelings at the time. Because when he started to be criticized for making too obvious a bid for power in 1923, he stood up at a big central party leadership meeting. And he said, look, you've got the wrong person if you think that I want to be the single dominant leader as Lenin was. You've forgotten who I am. I'm a Jew. A Jew can't rule Russia. We still have so much anti-Semitism in the country that this would never have crossed my mind. So on the one hand, he was a very boisterous leader, obviously thinking that he was the only one who could take the place of Lenin. On the other hand, 
he gave uh, an almost pitiful speech, saying that because of his background, because of his ethnic background, uh, he could never have put himself forward for that position. And I think if we got the chance to interview him today, we would be able to push questions at him that would force him to explain what he really intended back in 1923 to 1924, when he really did stand a chance of the succession. And at that point, he blew it, really? I think he blew it, not definitively, but he had his best chance in 1923 to 1924, and he didn't make the most of them. Do you think it's likely that he really believed his background would stop him becoming leader? Was perhaps that just rhetoric? I think there's a good deal of reason to think that when he didn't want a job, he brought up the Jewish question. Because it had happened before when Lenin proposed that he should be People's Commissar for Internal Affairs just after the October Revolution, he said no on the grounds that he was Jewish. And there must be a suspicion that he said no mainly because he didn't want the job. A few months later, he did become People's Commissar for military affairs, which was just as controversial on the grounds that he was Jewish as the previous job that he'd turned down. Do you think he was right that his Jewish background did have a detrimental effect on his chances of becoming leader? I think it was a factor, but I don't think it was the decisive factor. And I think another thing that we have to question him about is whether he really would have made a difference by being in power rather than Stalin. Trotsky, all his later years, said that he would have concentrated on rapid industrialization, on world revolution, on restoring the political zeal of the Communist Party, such as it had had in 1917, and that Stalin was a leader who headed the forces of bureaucratization. My own feeling is that this is a terrible misjudgment of what happened under Stalin and a misprediction of what would have happened under Trotsky. In other words, I think the two men were more like twins than members of different political species. And I'd like to question him about that. What is the evidence, comrade Trotsky, that Stalin wasn't interested in boosting rapid industrial growth? when that's exactly what happened in 1928. What is the evidence that he didn't want to expand the revolution westwards into Europe, when that's exactly what he did when a real chance did come in 1945? And what is the evidence that he was satisfied with heading a new bureaucratic elite when he exterminated that same elite in the late 1930s? The whole interpretation of the Russian Revolution as given to us in the influential writings of Trotsky would have to be gone over in our interview with the man. Okay, that's it for this month. Don't forget to visit our website, www.bbchistorymagazine.com, to enter the Simon Sharma competition, or to sign up for our new TV webmail, or just have a chat on our forums. And please do look out for next month's podcast, where I'll be finding out if historians think England ought to ask for the bio-tapestry to be brought home. And I'll be talking to a man who helped crack top-secret German codes at Bletchley Park in the Second World War. Hope you'll join us next month.